is going on in the brains of teenagers. What effect does puberty have on the brain? And why is risk-taking behaviour in adolescence actually really important? I'm Anna Machen and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains, from before birth to after death. And this week, we're growing up with the neuroscience of puberty and adolescence. You could really pinpoint when puberty starts by measuring the activity of certain neurons in the brain. When we had all those talks, like everyone came out looking incredibly shocked and scared. But now everyone's like kind of getting used to it at school. We really think that it's because of these changes in the brain that makes adolescence this really unique developmental period. This is how we're wired. Everyone's experience of teenagerhood is different. Mine involves some very dodgy outfits and a dream of being a rock star, even though I couldn't actually play the guitar. But ultimately, this crucial, awkward, wonderful, terrible stage of life plays a critical role, not just in how our bodies change, but in how our brains develop too. And although it's teenagers that get a bad rap, the changes that accompany puberty often start a couple of years earlier, as I'm well aware. Right, go and show. So the bunnies are on the back, and the guineas are in the um, garage. Okay, we will let the dogs out as well. Okay, they're going to be like a swirling. <laughs> so we have the guinea pigs. So, Ooh. what are their names? Um, their names are Gertie, Bertie, Waffle, and Edward. Oh, excellent. Um, but basically, obviously, everyone can hear the dogs because. Um, I'm Kitty Taylor. I am um, daughter of my, uh, my mum here, um, Anna Machen, and I am 12 years old. I'm, I'm nearly 13 in November, and I'm here to talk about growing up and things like that. Yeah, because you know all about growing up, don't you? Because you're currently yeah. doing it, aren't you? That's right. So tell me a little bit about you, so everyone knows who you are. So what do you like doing? Um, I enjoy doing stage makeup. Um, I also enjoy doing drawing and art. It's definitely my favourite subject at school. How many fluffy creatures have we got in this house? We have 11, which my dad says is too many, but I don't I don't think it's enough. I really want to get some rats or something. Um, but um, we have three dogs, two gerbils, two rabbits and four guinea pigs. And basically, our dogs, we've just adopted one and her name's Eva and she's very cheeky. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Miss Kitty. So we're here to talk to you about growing up and about yeah. puberty. So what do you, what have you heard about what puberty is? Well, I've learned from school, obviously. Um, when we had all those talks, like everyone came out looking incredibly shocked and scared. But now everyone's like kind of getting used to it at school. I've now gone to secondary school, so we're learning it a bit more in depth. We've just um, finished um, a topic in science on it. And it was, it was just, it's actually quite, in one way, everyone kind of enjoyed it because it's quite funny, especially like the practicals that we had to do. No, 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 don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Um, so basically we had to test sanitary products and all of that. So yeah. So you've learned about puberty from school. Yeah. Where else have you learned about it from? 
Um, well, obviously you've taught me a bit about it. I drew you some excellent diagrams, can I yeah, just say? Yeah, they, 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 they were quite frightening at one point. Um, but, um, yeah, so, and then I've, I've, I've got some books about it, but I don't really know that much. So, you're going through puberty at the moment. Yeah. What does that feel like? Well, obviously you get, like, emotional <laughs> and it gets, like, sometimes, like, when I'm, I get really angry at the dogs and then I get emotional about the dogs and then all of a sudden I just start crying at one point. And then sometimes I'm really happy and then I get really grumpy and I'm very good at being, like, grumpy teenager, so. You are quite good at that already. Yeah. yeah door slamming <laughs> in general. Yeah. yeah. Going on. Argumentative, yeah. aren't you, a little bit? I'm not even, uh, I'm, I'm not even 13 yet. So. No, I know. You started early. And what does it feel, those changes? Is it is it scary um, to grow up? It's a bit scary because, like, obviously there's a world that you have to go into and then there's all of this stuff on the news and then it's just, like, quite a scary big world and you're, like, it, when you go through puberty, basically it means you're becoming an adult and it's quite scary. As Kitty said, we hear a lot about how puberty is becoming an adult. But what does that mean to a scientist? Russell Romeo is a professor of neuroscience at Bernard College in New York, where he's an expert in the brain on puberty. So first things first, what is the definition of puberty? Pretty standard definition is a discrete physiological event that is marked by both hormonal and bodily changes that ultimately take an individual from being infertile to reaching a, a level of fertility. So puberty is a sort of reproductive maturation process. Okay, so you say it's a discrete phenomenon. So it has a beginning and an end. But obviously trying to pinpoint that beginning, I think, is, is quite hard, isn't it? I mean, from our own experience, you know, people start puberty at different times. Some girls might experience growth of breasts, but might, some might start getting body hair. So when would you say, right, there we go, puberty has started? It's actually more of a brain thing. We think of puberty as a body thing. And in part of the definition, these bodily changes that happen. But really, puberty is initiated by the brain. If there was a way of actually measuring certain changes in the brain, you could really pinpoint when puberty starts by measuring the activity of certain neurons in the brain. And it is the activation of those cells in the brain that really starts the whole process that ultimately leads to the changes in hormone levels and the effects that has on the body. Okay. And is this a particular discrete area of the brain or is it a particular type of cell in the brain that's causing this to happen? Both. So the cells in question are cells that contain a substance called kispeptin. And this is a signaling molecule that basically can signal to cells in the brain to activate them. These cells are largely found in an area of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is really at the base of the brain. And it's, it's really localized to being the center of hormonal control. Uh, it's one of its major jobs. But it is this group of cells that become active and produce this messenger that tell a second group of cells called gonadotropin-releasing hormone cells, or GNRH for short, thankfully. But it is these GNRH cells, once they're activated, they start to secrete their hormone into, into the circulation to signal to a gland that's right underneath the hypothalamus called the pituitary gland. 
And when that GnRH gets to the pituitary gland, it signals the pituitary gland to release a couple of other hormones, which in turn then activate the gonads like the ovaries and the testes to start secreting the gonadal hormones, which then activates kind of puberty as we think about it, the hormonal changes of gonadal hormones. And the gonadal hormones, those are the ones which we, we all know the names of. So that's the testosterone, the estrogen, the progesterone. That's correct. Okay, but the hormones that are released in the brain, that's not those. So there's no sex difference in the brain hormones that are released. That's right. Yeah. So in the brain, these kispeptin cells that are activating the GnRH cells, that's happening in, in males and females. When it comes to teenagers, we can be quick to blame it on the hormones. But what are they? And what role do they play both in puberty and behaviour? How We're Wired's producer and resident neuroscientist, Eva Higginbotham, is here to explain. Hormones are chemical substances that can act as messengers in the body. Crucially, they can be made in one part of the body, travel in the bloodstream, or sap if you're a tree, because yes, plants do have them too, and carry out their effects elsewhere. From regulating your blood pressure to making you feel sleepy, hormones are involved in a huge number of bodily processes. Over 50 hormones have been identified in humans so far, and the gonadal hormones, or sex hormones, are produced in the testes and ovaries. There are several, but the main ones are estradiol, a type of estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. In males, testosterone is released from the developing testes and binds to receptors around the body, causing the development of secondary sex characteristics, like growing an Adam's apple. Sometimes, testosterone will produce its effects by going through yet another messenger. For example, for facial hair, testosterone in the bloodstream gets converted into another hormone called dihydrotestosterone, or DHT, that will bind to sensitive hair follicles on the face to stimulate hair growth. And although we consider testosterone to be the male sex hormone, it's produced in females too, just normally at much lower levels and mostly in the ovaries and adrenal glands. But for females, it still plays an important role in things like bone health and fertility even. In females, it's estradiol that pushes forward the development of secondary sex characteristics, from widening of the hips to changes in body fat distribution. And just like how females make testosterone, males also make estradiol, just at lower levels, where it plays various roles, including being important for sperm production. When it comes to behaviour and well-being, both oestrogen and testosterone are known to affect mental health. Low testosterone is associated with fatigue, depression and anxiety, and low or just fluctuating oestrogen can have similar effects. Both these hormones can cross the blood-brain barrier to bind to large populations of nerve cells in the brain, which can affect the release of neurotransmitters, including those like serotonin and dopamine that play major roles in mood, as well as have effects on sexual desire and arousal. So, all that said, perhaps it's unsurprising that the arrival of high levels of these hormones during puberty can have effects on behaviour, from mood swings to emotional outbursts to starting to fancy people. As Eva mentioned, the sex hormones that rise with puberty also help drivers to seek out romantic attachments. That's something we'll dig into further in our love episode later on in the series. But for now, I was curious about how Kitty 
and her friends are feeling. So this is the thing about puberty, isn't it? Is that we start to sort of um, develop and maybe start having relationships with other people. So do your friends and you talk about sort of boyfriends, girlfriends, sexuality, all that um, kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, like some of us talk about... I, I, I've never had a boyfriend or a girlfriend because... One, I think I'm too young, and two, I just haven't found someone like that yeah. that I love in that way. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, some of my friends they have boyfriends and girlfriends. Yeah, and it's all quite open talking about it. Um, yeah, pretty much. Like we discuss it, like like our crushes and things, but we tell each other secrets and all of that. So yeah. <laughs> and speaking of being ready for relationships at different ages. We know that different people start puberty at different ages too. I asked Russell if we know why that is. I don't think there's any one thing. A couple things we know that have a, a significant influence on it, though, are things like body weight, specifically the level of adiposity or fat tissue. There does seem to be some sort of critical mass of fat tissue that one has to have to allow the body to go through this pubertal process. Which I guess kind of makes sense is, is if part of puberty is to initiate sort of reproductive fertility, the body is going to need to be able to withstand the pregnancy, right? So there's going to have to be a certain amount of energy resources available in the body for that. So that's one of the things that is probably gating the pubertal onset. But also things like stressors have been known to affect the timing of puberty. And with uh, people experiencing a lot of chronic uh, stressors tend to enter puberty a little bit later. And that might be because the effects of hormones released at the time of stress can have a suppressive effect on these regions of the brain that are responsible for initiating puberty. So there does seem to be a couple of different factors that converge that will ultimately allow the, the body to go through puberty or not. And so how have you managed or how have scientists managed to actually study the impact of puberty on the brain on what happens with these hormones in the brain? What techniques do you use? So there's a lot of research both at the human level and the non-human animal level. A lot of human research, one can measure the various levels of hormones that are in the circulation and do various neuroimaging techniques to look at how maybe changes in hormone levels are associated with structural and functional changes in the brain. My work is more at the level of the non-human animal models. And for those, we can do things like manipulate levels of hormones and look at how that affects the cellular and molecular structure of neurons in the brain. And so looking at how it might change it structurally, how does it affect the size of the cells, the, the number of cells in different brain regions and, and what genes they're expressing. We can also look at their function and their connectivity. We're able to assess that at, at really at the microscopic level, which um, unfortunately we can't do in humans unless there is postmortem tissue. So structurally, the brain is undergoing significant changes during this time. And it's not just humans that go through puberty. As an evolutionary anthropologist, I have been fascinated by human adolescence for at least a couple of decades. Because while all mammals experience puberty, not all mammals experience adolescence. This might come as a surprise. I have certainly been guilty of describing my puppy's behaviour as being adolescent when she has a tantrum and it eats something she shouldn't, which is usually my lunch. But, in fact... As far as we are aware, we are the only species on the planet who has an adolescent life stage. Now, most species on Earth go through three life stages as they grow. Infant, juvenile, adult. Unusually, humans have five. Infant, child, juvenile, adolescent, adult. 
These two extra life stages are in large part due to our massive brains, which are six times bigger than they should be for a mammal of our size, and, as a consequence, take unusually long to fully develop. And in turn, those big brains have made our lives very complicated, both socially and technologically, as we are always inventing new things to learn. So we need extra time to gain all the knowledge we need to survive and thrive as adults. And because adolescence is unique to us, anthropologists like me find it particularly fascinating to study. Biologically, adolescence is defined as the period between the onsets of puberty, which Russell has helpfully described for us, and the cessation of skeletal growth. That just means when our skeleton stops growing. This allows us time before we become fully-fledged adults and have to enter the big bad world to continue to develop our brains, to explore our world, to discover who we are and get those life skills pinned down. Adolescence first evolved about 850,000 years ago in an ancestor known as Homo antecessor, but it persists because it is vital to the survival of our species. Now, I'd like to introduce you to our third Eva of the episode, puppy, producer, and now Professor Eva Telzer from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she studies both what is happening in the brain of teenagers and how that affects their behaviour. The brain during adolescence goes through so much more development and change and reorganization, second only to what you might see in little babies. And so the brain is changing so much more, for example, than a child's brain. It becomes what I like to think about as more flexible. So it will be very sensitive to what it's exposed to in its environment. So the things that a teen might see or experience or be exposed to might change how teens respond in other ways in their environment. We see, for example, this neural system in the brain that's very sensitive to rewards become even more sensitive. So if you, for example, took pictures of an adolescent's brain and compared it to a child's brain and an adult's brain, there's this region in the brain, it's called the ventral striatum, and it is very activated when people receive rewards. And if you compare those pictures of the ventral striatum between children, teenagers, and adults when they're getting rewards, the ventral striatum in adolescence is what I would refer to as hyperactivated. It is showing even greater activation compared to both children and adults. Wow. Okay. So does that mean they, they're more likely to seek these rewards or show behaviors that would generate these rewards in them? Yeah, both. So particularly seek out rewards, and this can range from lots of different types of rewards, but in particular social rewards. So for example, getting likes, being accepted by your peers. It can range to things like doing something thrilling and exciting. It's thought to be related to some of the sensation-seeking behaviors that we see in adolescence. Teens may also be more susceptible to their peers because of the kind of reward of being accepted by your peers if you go along with what they're doing. And so this heightened reward activation is thought to underlie just a lot of the behaviors that we're seeing in adolescence. Also some very good and positive behaviors too. So for example, it's rewarding to help people. So we see in adolescence that there's this increase in 
pro-social and helping behaviors. And again, we think it's likely related to this enhanced reward-based experience that might mean that it feels really good. It makes them happy. It gives them a sense of kind of meaning and purpose to, to help other people. That's really fascinating, isn't it? Because actually, just from anecdotal experience of, I think, my own teenagers, but also being at school myself. Yeah, that was the time when you really did start volunteering and you started campaigning and you started doing all those behaviours where you're like looking. And it also, for me, counteracts that stereotype we have that teenagers can be quite selfish. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's so many stereotypes of adolescents. And one of them is this idea that they're self-centered and only think about themselves. But really, adolescence is a time when perspective taking is increasing, when empathy is increasing. If you look just at some of the youth movements out there, so for example, the climate change activism that's happening, this is being led by adolescents. So Greta Thunberg in the United States, the March for Your Lives movement, so these anti-gun movements, this is being led by adolescents. And so they are out there trying to make change in the world for the better. And they're not being self-centered. They're not being selfish. They're really, really engaged in the world. And we really think that it's because of these changes in the brain that makes adolescence this really unique developmental period that gives them both the drive to engage in those behaviors, but also the development of brain regions that help them take the perspective of others and engage in empathy and thinking about others' needs. You mentioned one thing about the environment being really critical at this point. So do we see, I don't know whether you've studied this culturally, cross-culturally, but do we see cultural differences in the brain changes that we see in adolescence, depending on the environment they were brought up in. Yeah, yeah. So I've done a lot of work examining different cultural groups in how teens might respond to rewards or engage in cognitive control or other aspects of development that we see in this time. One really interesting finding of young Q, who was a graduate student in my lab, he is now a professor himself, What he has shown is that the stereotypes of adolescence vary across cultures. So, for example, many Western cultures like the United States view adolescence a little bit more negatively. They view the teen years as this time of risk taking, of disengaging from the family, of caring a little bit less about school, whereas other cultures, for example, like China, don't view adolescence as negatively as some of these Western cultures. And then adolescents engage in those behaviors less in these cultures that don't view adolescents so negatively. So the idea here is that the stereotypes of adolescents become self-fulfilling prophecies in many ways. And so, for example, if we compare adolescents who grew up in the United States to adolescents who grew up in China, we see differences in their risk-taking behaviors, partly being driven by their own stereotypes of what adolescents are typically like. If we scan their brains, they show differences in activation in these reward-related areas when they're getting rewards. They show differences in cognitive control-related regions when they're kind of trying to engage in persistence and do well on a task. And so the environment really shapes not only how we view adolescents, but how adolescents themselves behave and how their brains develop. That's fascinating. So this is real feedback relationship, actually. Exactly. Between environment, neural structure, and then going back into environment. That's really interesting. I'm going to look at my teenagers in an entirely different way now, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's interventions that that have been done to try to change teens' views of what adolescents are typically like. And these interventions that try to get teens to think more positively about adolescents have effects on their behavior. So it's really important for us to redefine what adolescents are like, because when teens view adolescents as more positive, they engage in more positive behaviors themselves. We talk about risk taking with teens, and I know that obviously some risks are really negative, but actually we need to learn how to deal with risk to build resilience, don't we, as we go on and learn how to operate as adults. So what might be some positive risk taking behaviors that an adolescent might show? Yeah, so there's so many examples in the media and movies and parental worries about the ways that risk-taking can be so negative. So reckless driving or doing drugs or unprotected sexual behaviors or just jumping off of a big cliff um, into the ocean or something. But what's often overlooked are these positive risks, as you allude to. So there's been research in my lab from a couple of students looking at what we call positive risks and prosocial risks. So positive risks might be more socially acceptable. So for example, raising your hand in class and potentially not knowing the answer. So looking silly in front of your peers. A pro-social risk, for example, is taking a risk that might help somebody else. So this might be standing up to a bully who is picking on a peer. And so the adolescent might be risking getting bullied themselves or their peers, like looking down on them for sticking up for their peer who's being bullied, but they're putting themselves out there to help somebody. So it's this type of risk that is very positive and pro-social, this other-oriented risk. And we see these all the time in the world of teenagers, but these are often overlooked when we think about risk-taking in teenagers. Meeting Eva was really fascinating, both as a scientist, but also as a mum of two teenage girls. It seems that maybe we have to rethink how we stereotype our teenagers and look at them in a much more nuanced way. And despite the complexities and stresses of growing up, sometimes it's not all bad. I know one of the things, and this might be because when your brain's changing, obviously in your brain exist things like your sense of yourself and sense of identity. Do you still feel like you? Yeah, I actually feel more like me now because when I was younger, I was like, oh no, like I went through sort of a crisis like when I was like, I think, I don't know, like 9 to 11. I guess it was partly covid But also I sort of felt like I'm not myself. But when, this is actually quite cool, but on Halloween I got like this makeup kit and I actually felt like myself when I put the makeup on and did makeup and I thought about fashion and all of that, so yeah. Yeah, so you feel more yourself. So in a way, doing through puberty has made you more confident in who you are. Yeah, and I definitely, because obviously I'm in choir now and... Actually, um, the first day after this weekend that we're talking on um, is when we're going to perform. And I'm really excited for that, actually, because it's just going to be really exciting. And I've even like been asked to do like makeup and things for school productions sometimes. And yeah, it's like, just being like myself is actually really working out. So Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. So you know who you are. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much to Russell Romeo, Eva Telzer and of course the lovely Kitty for speaking to me for this episode. We're back in a few weeks where we're exploring the science of movement. 
From meeting a man who's used advanced tech to walk again after being paralysed, to the experts understanding how our brains control our complex movements. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our Focus episodes, where Eva's taking a look at adolescence and mental health. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.